So a great example of this, a very simple one, is hugs. So we don't hug each other near enough. Especially now with COVID. Especially now with COVID. You're listening to the Nacho Kids Podcast, where we discuss all things step family related. Real stories, real people, real help. Your hosts are the creators of the Nacho Kids Method and the Nacho Kids Academy Step Family Coaching Team, Lori and David Sims. Welcome to the month of men on the Nacho Kids Podcast. Hello, men. Oh, oh, men. Man. <laughs> hey, man. Men. men. Hey, how you doing, man? <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, welcome. Sounds kind of uh, creepy every time I say it. It does. <laughs> it's better if I say it. The month of men. I know. <laughs> yeah. So we've heard from uh, some very interesting people with some good information and mm-hmm. good perspective. I like it. I do too. I've enjoyed it. And we appreciate everyone that has been a guest on our podcast. And we're going to jump right in. Today, our guest is Matt Larson. He is with the Human Improvement Project. Hmm. And they are nonprofit. And they have a free parenting app called The Happy Child. Okay. So we'll talk more about that. And David, you know I'm a talker. Mm-hmm. I could have talked to him for hours and hours and hours, but I didn't. <laughs> so you're saying he's more interesting than I am. <laughs> he's new. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But their parenting app is used in 165 countries. Okay. And it's not the parenting app like Family Wizard or whatever the other one is, that people use to communicate with the other parent. This is more of an app to help you with building bonds with your kids. Hmm. And yes, we know that Nacho Kids is about blended families, but that doesn't mean that this information is irrelevant because most of the times people listening to this also have bio kids. Mm-hmm. And... If you are not showing, once you start re-engaging, a lot of these tips are very helpful. Yep. We talk about childhood trauma. One of the things that he talks about is even one of his kids said, I feel anxious around you because apparently Matt likes to pick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And his son, he doesn't care for it much. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah it's always like, is he going to target me today? Is right. he going to say something to me when I walk through? Right. So we talk about what you can do to improve your long-term well-being. Okay. We didn't get into everything, of course, but a lot of improving your long-term well-being is stuff that we talk about in the, in the academy. Changing your thinking, being more positive, mm-hmm. seeing things from a different perspective. We talk about hugs with Matt. Mm-hmm. And I was really proud of myself because a lot of times when we talk to people especially like experts like Matt and what was that lady's name? We talked to that one day. I can't remember. We talked to a lady another day and we got through and I'm like, I am a horrible parent. (laughs) Yeah. I remember that one. And (laughs) this one, when he starts talking about hugs, I'm like, I'm doing something right. Because you know, before Jackson leaves, I'm like, come give me a hug. Yeah. And I get my hug. Yeah. And I did bring up in this too, David, how your love language is physical touch. Oh, goodness. So, no, my question with it was, do the hugs mean more to you? Of course they do. I don't think so, because What even, do you mean? You How do you know? I know everything. Means? So now you're answering whether or not something means more to me. 
Well, that's like you telling me to try something that you know I'd like it. Like onions. (laughs) Again. You don't know. But you're saying that you know whether something means more to me. Okay, okay. I don't know. That's what I want to hear. Give me a hug. (laughs) I'm glad you weren't on this podcast with Matt because he has a tech background. Oh, sweet. Yeah, we would have been all nerdy. Yeah, it would have been a very, very long podcast. But anyway, back to... What was I talking about you would know? Um, About my love language. Yes. And I've told you this before that a lot of times if I am nervous or upset about something, even you just touching my arm almost calms me down. Mm -hmm. And so it does have an effect on me, even though that's not my love language. So don't dismiss those hugs, people. Mm -hmm. And don't do the one arm hugs. (laughs) That drives me insane. If I'm going to hug you, you better hug me back. Did y'all talk about that? No, we talked about that today on another podcast. I did. Well, you know, <laughs> on the same token, though, if I'm if I'm meeting somebody of the opposite sex, I'm probably going to do the one arm sideways hug. Yes. So just just a matter of appropriateness. I don't want necessarily full on body rubbing hugs. It's <laughs> 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 the only I think of. <laughs> it's funny because you know my. My business partner, which I never talk about on here, but you know he's a big fella, and he knows if there's anything he knows how to do to get me to to step away from him, he'll say, "Give me a hug," <laughs> and I'm like, "Shut up," because <laughs> I'm like, "I am not giving your big burly self a hug." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny. It isn't this podcast, but it's the one I recorded today, where the person I was interviewing was talking about how you know men aren't as cool about stuff like that no we'll slap each other on the butt on the football field but we won't give no hugs and he said he said (laughs) made a comment that he's got a friend that you know he just adores him and he loves him and they've been through a lot together and he appreciates him and he's like you know anytime i hug him he goes stiff (laughs) and he said that sometimes he'll be like you know i've got to hug you right and the guy's like it just depends on how you do it because like you know my friend johnny he's another big guy me and him give each other bro hugs so when you do like that bro hug, you know, like that one arm where you'd like kind of give each other that, you know, high five kind of deal. And then you pull each other in and you'd like, you know, hit them on the back a couple of times. <laughs> kind of, it's almost like the Heimlich maneuver type thing <laughs> where, you know, you walk away. It's like, I don't know if that was a hug or if he's trying to knock me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, David, you do have a point about the whole, you know, hug thing. I, I don't want you fully embracing some stranger lady. That. Let's have a month of women. <laughs> We've had several months of women. Goofy. One other thing, I, I was really impressed with Matt. I really was. And I think I told him a million times. But he was involved in getting the Adam Walsh Child Protection Act passed. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I remember when that happened. Yeah. I mean, I was a kid. I don't know. remember how old I was. I think I might have been a teenager. But I just remember, I remember my parents like, you can't go anywhere without me knowing where you're at. And I'm like, what in the world is happening? Because, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was growing up, you do what you want, where you want, when you want. And then all of a sudden, it just felt like everything changed. And then, you know, when I found out about the story, I was like, oh, my gosh, how horrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because you know that Adam Walsh was not the first child that was abducted. Mm-mm. But... It received a lot of publicity. Yeah. And they even have Code Adams mm-hmm. because of that. And I think it's great. So, of course, you know, 
probably without me even telling you, you know that I told Matt, I'm like, oh, great, you can help me change the family court system. <laughs> yeah. Y'all, I'm not giving up on that. I might be 90. So Matt talks about cortisol and oxytocin and all this stuff. Oh, yeah. Don't be overwhelmed by him talking about those things. Basically, there are just things in our body that make us happy or make us sad. Mm-hmm. So don't feel overwhelmed when he's talking about it and go, I don't even know what this man's talking about. Should have paid attention in science class. So, David, since you paid so much attention in school, mm-hmm. what's oxytocin? Oxytocin is that thing that your pituitary gland releases to make you feel good. Okay, we'll go with that. And then cortisol is that nasty stuff that your pituitary gland releases. Your pituitary gland? Yeah, pituitary gland. That's hard to say quickly. Anyway, that's your... Your stressor hormone, it eats away at you. Your hormone. 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 <laughs> I just can't say anything, right? Anyway, the cortisol stuff is nasty. And that's, you know, that's the thing that gets released when you have all this stress and it causes all these health issues. Well, David, I realized talking to Matt that you cause my cortisol levels to rise <sighs> because I'm always afraid of what you're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference between stress and uncertainty. Okay, but they both cause cortisol to rise. Okay. At the same time, I am also... When we're at the church event and you open your mouth, my cortisol levels shoot to the roof. (laughs) (laughs) The Stepmom's Alive conference. Oh, really? Dude. You you were nervous every time I said something? I'm nervous when you say something here. (laughs) Yeah, but you can edit here. Yes, thank you, Jesus. I do take full advantage of the times when we're live. I know you do. <laughs> and most of that's to get a reaction. I mean, because you're a button pusher. <laughs> right? No. <laughs> really? Yes, I am the founder of the button pushings and nerves <laughs> of, of the world you foundation made, international. And you, <laughs> <laughs> you made fun of me the other day for saying button pushers. <laughs> I know. And I think I edited it out. Okay, anyway, yeah, we're off the chain today. So get to listening to Matt Larson and download the Happy Child app. I downloaded it and I'm going through it. It's very interesting. It really is. That's right. And it's easy to use, like easy, easy. Yep. And if you listen to it, you have all the oxytocin you need. And if you would like to leave feedback regarding this, you can always email us and I'll send it to Matt. Yeah, but please don't send any email that will create cortisol. Cortisol, hang on. That was the bad feeling. <laughs> <laughs> See, should have paid attention to science class. <laughs> I don't remember that from science class. Or I guess maybe it's chemistry. I don't know. It was one of them classes I was in. I don't even know. In, in chemistry, you wouldn't talk about this. I don't know. Maybe it was the Trivial Pursuit game I played and I learned it. That's what it was. <laughs> all right, now we figured it all out. David's knowledge comes from Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> All right, folks, let's get to listening before she goes run off somewhere else. But first, here's a word about the Academy. There is a way to save your sanity and your relationship, and it's called the Nacho Kids Academy. In the Nacho Kids Academy, you will learn the skills and knowledge to properly nacho, techniques to handle stepfamily challenges, ways to improve your communication, and much, much more. Visit NachoKidsAcademy.com and sign up today to join other step parents who are seeing the life-changing benefits of nachoing. Again, that's NachoKidsAcademy.com. 
Today, we have Matt Larson with the Human Improvement Project. Hey, Matt, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. So the Human Improvement Project is a nonprofit. That's right. It is. It's a nonprofit research institution that studies the question, what makes the biggest difference to long-term well-being? And we particularly focus on kids. So we'll study um, experiences that kids have and then sort of how that affected them later in life if they ended up having mental health issues like anxiety or depression, criminal behavior, homelessness, drug and alcohol addiction, uh, and just sort of you know general um, long-term well-being. So that's that's essentially what we do. So we do research on our own. We fund uh, research in universities, and then we uh, come out with content that uh, basically shares that uh, with the world, completely free. We're a nonprofit, so everything that we do is completely free. And we have we have the top parenting apps in the world. So we are used in 165 countries, uh, 15 different languages, and we have you know millions and millions of parents all over the world sort of learning what these fundamental issues are that uh, that impact long-term well-being in, in children. Great. I know a tad about the parenting apps, not yours, but just in general. I know some of them say I'm messaging my son's father and I kind of have a hateful tone. It's like it will tell you, hey, this is kind of hateful or you need to change this word or but won't let you type certain words to where you can't bash the person? Does your apps offer that? No, what we really do, so we, you know, it might be helpful to sort of talk about how we ended up doing this, right? Why Mm -hmm. somebody with my background ever ended up in in this space where suddenly, you know, we're we're doing this because it really, I I never would have guessed it. And and I don't think most people who knew me would have ever thought this is where I I would have uh, would have ended up. So I think maybe kind of explaining how this came about might kind of help help explain, you know, what the app really does and why it does what it does. Would that would that be helpful to, to talk about? Oh, definitely. Okay. So I come from a tech software background. So I've been the the CEO of a number of of tech companies on the boards of a number of tech companies. I'm the chairman of two software companies uh, right now, although I spend very little time on that. Um, I spend almost all my time on on this this nonprofit uh, research institution. But what happened with me is I I started my nonprofit journey about 15 years ago, and uh, my wife and I started, we had, I had sold part of a software company. And so we started a family foundation and we said, our goal is to do whatever most is going to help children in the United States. That was our, our target market. And we said, we're going to use a formula to figure out how to best do that. And so our formula was one, how many kids does this issue affect? Two, how much pain does it cause them? And three, how, what's the duration of that pain? How long does that pain last? Like a broken arm is a lot of pain, but just for a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up putting every childhood issue that we could find into that formula um, from, you know, childhood uh, diseases to drownings, to uh, car accidents, to everything you can, you know, you can think of. And what ended up coming out at the top of that formula was, was child sexual abuse, uh, and that's a whole nother story in and of itself. But we we basically found out that the biggest way to solve that was some things in the federal government. Um, so we you know we worked with the federal government, and it was a very bizarre situation. I, from when we started to maybe six to nine months later, we're standing in the Rose Garden of the White House. Our bill had been passed. We're shaking hands with the Senate Majority Leader who helped us pass it. 
And it ended up being one of the most significant bills uh, that has affected that issue in the United States. So uh, every, every day, every year, about 12,000 suspected pedophiles get arrested under that bill. So for example, in the next hour, statistically three will get arrested. So we had, our, we had sort of worked on that issue um, for some time, but a few years ago, me and another, another tech CEO were, were on a walk and the question came up, what's the thing that I could do that would make the biggest difference to my long-term well-being? And I didn't know the answer to that. I didn't know, was I supposed to eat more vegetables? Was I supposed to exercise more? Was I supposed to get more education in some area? I had no idea and neither did he. He didn't know what would be best for, for his family. So we thought, you know, that's kind of strange that we don't know what the most important thing is that we should work on. And so what we decided to do was to fund a clinical trial. So we hired some participants and then we had a bunch of experts. We had psychologists and doctors and nutritionists and fitness people and just anybody we could think of. And the experts would say, go ask uh, this participant, maybe, you know, maybe if you were one, go ask Lori all these questions. And then Lori would answer and we would go back to them and say, okay, here's how she answered. And they would say, go ask these follow-up questions. So we'd go back and forth, back and forth until eventually they said, yes, we think this is Lori's number one issue and this is Bob's number one issue and so on. Well, what shocked us was that all of those participants only had one of two issues at the top. They were always at the top of the list and we were not aware of either one of these issues. So we're like, wow, that's crazy. So we then started talking to more experts and pretty quickly somebody said, oh, you guys rediscovered what Harvard and the CDC discovered. And by the way, these two issues essentially are the biggest factors for these big issues in society. So they're the biggest factors besides some genetic issues are the biggest factors in criminal behavior, anxiety, depression, anger issues, bullying, homelessness, drug and alcohol addiction, just general poor life satisfaction scores, poverty rates. I mean, and it was, it was too hard to believe. It's like, wait a minute, you're telling me these two issues are the prime predictors along with genetics of all of these societal problems. And they said, yes. And we said, well, why do you guys know this? And the public obviously doesn't. We had no idea. And I remember one professor said, Matt, I've been giving talks on this stuff for 20 years and the public just doesn't, it just doesn't resonate with them. They just, somehow it's not working. And so we said, well, as tech people, what to be successful in the tech world, you really have to be very good at the science of messaging. You can have lots of software companies have great software, but you have to be really good at that science of messaging to get people to want to try yours of all the good ones out there to try yours. So we said, this could be a messaging issue. We're going to, even though this is not something we, we're experts in, we're going to really dive into this thing and figure out if we can figure out how to message it. And so what we ended up finding is the current messaging that they were using was not only not good, it was basically a complete disaster. It would completely you know, make everybody try to avoid the topics as much as possible. Um, but what we ended up saying is, okay, we, we ended up having doing enormous amounts of research, having lots and lots of, of studies with parents. I mean, thousands of parents have reviewed personally our lessons with us and talked about, you know, what scared them in the lessons and what they liked about it and all that. And so we really polished that so that we could get, you know, get this core information to families to really 
transform what they're doing, but yet, you know, just do it in a way that they liked, that they enjoyed, that uh, made them excited to go try in their own family. So we are really focused on these two issues, the two issues that we can measure in children and then and then predict what, you know, their long-term well-being as adults. And so we really teach the skills for those two underlying issues. So rather than dealing with surface, you know, level issues, we really get down to this, this fundamental core. We start with these, these two core issues, and then we build the skill sets around those. And then we have these, these really high, um, what we call behavioral change scores, where we measure parents six months later, for example, and ask them in the last month, has your behavior changed in these various areas? And we get tremendous behavioral change because once you learn this stuff, it's almost, it's hard to unlearn it. It's sort of people kind of describe it as, oh, the lights got turned on in our family and now we really know what's happening. So that's a very long answer, but that that's essentially how we got here and why we really focus on, on just the most important things and how to influence those. Okay. I have a question. What is the bill that you mentioned being passed? So the bill is called the um, Adam Walsh Child Protection Act. It's uh, it's named after uh, Adam Walsh, who was abducted. His father. Um, now I'm going to, of course, forget his first name. But he's you know, he's had a lot of shows on TV and sort of become uh, very much sort of a, an advocate for this stuff. Um, you know, since then. So you would recognize if I said his name, which I can't believe I'm forgetting it right now. You would uh, John Walsh is his name. Okay. Um, so John Walsh is you know has had a lot of crime related shows, or at least you'd recognize him if if you saw what he what he looked like. Um, but that all kind of happened because his son uh, was abducted. And so that that's the name of the bill. From a mall, right? I think that's right. I mean, the story, this all happened, you know, we did all that maybe 15 years ago. And, and since we've sort of switched focus now to this other issue, um, I, I forget all the details of that. But I think, yeah, I think it was maybe a mall or a sort of a, a store, like a, you know, a department store. But I forget the details. Sears. That might be right, yeah. In 1981, his son was abducted from a Sears department store. Yeah, because I've watched those shows. So I knew who you were talking about, but I couldn't remember his name either. That is great. I am really impressed with how far you've come in such a short time. I mean, that that's awesome. You know, when you said you were on um, at the White House, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. And then I'm thinking, you might can help me change the family court system. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I think we're... So we're growing really rapidly, um, as you can imagine. So we're, we essentially only have time to respond to people who approach us. And that's usually what happens is somebody will approach us about, hey, how do we get this into the school systems? And we're you know, working with people on that or universities will approach us. How can we work on that? But the court systems is absolutely on our, our, you know, our plan of we really need to, you know, we need to be able to get into that because th- those kids you know, often are some of them that need it most. Right. So what are the two issues that you discovered? So before I get into them, let me kind of explain sort of the analogy of, of what I think is, is, is happening here. And then I'll, I'll talk about the two issues. So okay. both of them are these chemicals, these hormones in your body in, in very specific situation. But I, I liken it to, I don't, you know, a lot of people are familiar with vitamin C and scurvy. So back in the days of Magellan and Vasco da Gama, they would lose 70 to 90% of their crew would die of scurvy. 
And that was basically what we now know as a lack of vitamin C. But it, for hundreds of years, they could not tell what was going on. Some thought they were eating too much meat and others thought they were just out at, you know, there was some disease at sea and so on. Um, and so it caused all sorts of chaos, but they, it did vary, right? Some captains had lower and they didn't realize that they were maybe, you know, having a, a, a type of vegetable that had more vitamin C in it. Um, it was, you know, sunshine can destroy vitamin C heating it. Like if you cook certain foods, you'll kill the vitamin C in it. So it was really confusing. And that's essentially what's happened now with these two issues. So these two hormones that I'm going to talk about are in, are, are affected by just about everything that we do. And that's why it's been so confusing. That's why we haven't really been able to isolate them until relatively recently in the last real, really decade. Now there's been tens of thousands of studies on each of these since then. But, um, but so you can, so we'll kind of think about it like that first, but let me talk about the first issue. So the first okay. issue, the biggest, uh, the first of the two biggest predictors that we know of is a hormone called cortisol. Mm -hmm. And, but it's not in every case. So cortisol is used for, I don't know, 15 to 20 things in our body, most of which you know, it's really important, but we have no control of, and you know, it's fine the way that it is, but it's only cortisol in one very specific situation. And that is when we are basically nervous that something's going to happen that will cause our emotions to suddenly plummet. An example of this. So this happens in every family in America. So in my family, for example, this was happening. I didn't, I didn't know this. So a, a common situation is being critical or sarcastic. So uh, when I asked my kids about this, one of my three kids, um, when I, I said, hey, is there ever a time when, are you nervous around me that I might say something, uh, a joke or say something critical uh, of you? And are you just nervous when you're around me? And two of my kids said no, but one of them said, yes, dad, I'm always nervous around you. I'm like, what? And it, it turned out it was because I would make a sarcastic joke about once a month, let's say, that's my guess. Mm -hmm. So for, you know, that 10 seconds, I'm making uh, a joke, but he was nervous. He had that high elevated cortisol level the entire month when he was around me. And that's, that's one of these, these big predictors. That's the first one. Now in our, in our completely free apps, uh, you know, put out by our, our nonprofit, uh, we cover that in a lot more detail, but that is the first one is we basically ask questions about things that would make them, you know, nervous that something's going to happen again. Now, as adults, we experience this too, right? There's certain people that we get around that we're just kind of nervous around them, right? They're, we're nervous that they're going to say something hurtful or that they're going to, you know, say something that makes us uncomfortable. Maybe it's somebody at work, maybe it's a family member. That's the number one predictor, or that's one of the top two predictors. So that is what we call the long-term unhappiness chemical. The more cortisol you have raised because of that particular issue, you're nervous, something is about to make your emotions plummet. That's the, that's the, that first predictor. Any questions on that before I go to the second one? Yeah. An example could be, say that you've got a spouse that cuts up a lot and they say things sometimes that you think are borderline inappropriate. So when you go out to dinner, say with your work people and your husband's going with you, you could be nervous or anxious and your cortisol levels rise because you're afraid of something he's going to say. That is exactly, that is a perfect example. That's right. And another example I'm thinking of as far as blended families was if a child goes, you know, just say they do every other week at the parent's home. 
when they go back on Monday and the bio parent says, so what did you do at your other parent's house? That can cause that cortisol to rise because they're afraid of what answer to give. They don't want to say they had a good time because it might hurt their dad. They don't want to say they had a crappy time because then the dad will contact the mom and it just causes a lot of stress. That is right on the money, Lori. And I think, so one of the things that we talk about is, and that we that we teach inside the app is that it's really important to sort of become very, let's say, skilled at, at naming underlying emotions. And so that's maybe too big of a, a topic for, for right here, but we, we teach those skills in that because the more you can understand the emotions your child is, is going to have, the sort of, you'll actually increase your long-term well-being and their long-term well-being. So that's one thing that's really important with all of this is like when you're doing something that might be raising the cortisol level in the other person, it will lower their long-term well-being. It will also lower yours. So it's either a win-win or it's a lose-lose. And those are, I think, really good, you know, example situations and and maybe, you know, we don't have enough time on this one, but sort of the more of those that you can name those situations for uh, your listeners and can kind of say, hey, this is another situation where that might help. And, and just, you know, help us as parents feel the emotions that the child is feeling, then we can start, you know, reducing that significantly. And that's what we find is that this, both of these issues are very solvable. Like this is not rocket science. You don't have to have major surgery. You don't have to have um, you know, go out and spend a huge amount of money. This is very solvable completely for free. It does take some practice, but I think, yes, those examples. And, and I think we all have, you know, have, have lots of those, but the more you, you know, can sort of think of like that, I think the more it help, it will help uh, your listeners really get that sense of, Oh, that's a situation where I'm making them nervous. Or yeah, maybe if I'm, if I'm asking them about, you know, my, uh, my ex spouse and I'm, kind of digging for dirt a little bit, right? And mm-hmm. they're nervous about that. That would, you know, any situation like that, that we can kind of bring out in the open and make people think about and feel the child's feeling, you know, reduces that and helps both the parent and the child. Right. Okay. So that, that's the first one. And, you know, we can, there's a lot more to that, that I think, you know, we can talk about there. This, so that's the long-term unhappiness chemical. Now let's get to the long-term happiness chemical. Okay. And that is um, oxytocin. So again, oxytocin is used for, I don't know, 15, 20 things in the body, most of which we don't need to, you know, worry too much about. Um, but what we're talking about is oxytocin released in safe relationships. Okay. So the most common is, if I uh, have a safe relationship with my child, which means, uh, and you know, we won't we don't have time to get into all these, but it means things like I I don't emotionally ambush them, right? You know, one of the things that causes that first chemical is uh, cortisol is when they're just sitting in the kitchen and I come in that again says something that makes their emotions plummet. So I come in and say, "Why'd you pick that shirt to wear?" Or you know, "Why are you eating that?" Or, you know, something critical. They're just sitting there and bam, their emotions suddenly go down. So if I emotionally ambush people a lot, I might not be a safe person or, uh, but, or if on the other side, if I emotionally surprise them a lot. So an emotional surprise is where they're just sitting there, let's say eating their breakfast. And I come in and I say, I like you, um, or you're a great kid or something like that. Now I surprise them with a flood of good emotions. So 
you know, there's a, this whole concept of how do we become a safe person? Um, but oxytocin, if it's released inside of safe relationships is the long-term happiness predictor. So a great example of this, a very simple one is hugs. So we don't hug each other near enough. Especially now with COVID. Especially now with COVID. We, we actually kind of, we do it right at the beginning of relationships. So when we have uh, a, uh, you know, a new baby or a young child, we'll hug them and kiss them all the time. And they get tons of oxytocin from that. And that's really good for them, right? They get, a, that, that's a really healthy situation. As they get older and older, we stop giving them those hugs. Essentially, we stop giving them oxytocin and we start starving them of this long-term happiness chemical. So, you know, for example, and, you know, in my family, you know, we're constantly giving each other hugs, right? If somebody's eating their breakfast, I'm coming up and like I did this morning with one of my kids who I saw, you know, around breakfast time, I came up and, you know, gave him a hug, kissed him on, on the top of his head. So all of that releases oxy, uh, oxytocin. And right now we essentially start starving our, our kids of it as they get older. You know, when my wife and I learned this, um, we started doing things like, for example, when we have our coffee in the morning, if we you know, ha- are doing that at the same time, we'll sit on the couch up against each other. And that was uh, something that worked for us. Well, we also tried to sort of like, and for a while there we did. So in the, you know, as we would sleep, maybe our feet would touch or something like that. And that just ended up being like, that was just too distracting. Uh, and so we ended up kind of settling in on whenever we watch TV, we'll usually watch TV for half hour before, you know, as we're going to, to bed and we'll hold hands while we're doing that. And that sounds sweet. And that, that, but that it's really, you know, we have a, a close relationship because we do these oxytocin things rather than it just being a sign of it. Right. And so in romantic relationships, we, early on, we do huge amounts of non-sexual touching, right? We're always holding hands and giving hugs and, and all of that kind of stuff. But the same thing happens as the relationship ages, we kind of think, oh, that's a young relationship thing. And so we start starving our romantic partner of oxytocin and, and we get really agitated with them and we don't understand why, right? When we think it's about the dishes and you know all of these different issues, but what it appears to be is about, oxytocin, you know, we're starving each other of oxytocin and probably cortisol issues as well, right? These two issues um, are are the the main issues either, hey, I'm nervous that you're going to be critical of me, you know, you're going to be critical of the route I drove, you know, to, you know, to wherever we're going or whatever, or I'm not getting enough oxytocin, um, you know, from you and, and that that type of thing. So, you, so that's the long-term happiness chemical. Uh, you definitely want to make sure, you know, you're getting enough. Um, there's, you know, been uh, some recent research on the 20 second hug. So purposefully saying, okay, uh, you know, if I can have, you know, if I can give each family member one 20 second hug, um, a, a week that we know that there's a, there's a huge amount of oxytocin in that 20 second hug. Uh, you know, I try to do it every day. I, I don't quite get there, you know, with my youngest son, I put, you know, put, still put him to bed. So I, you know, give him one every day. And but I don't, I have two teens. I've got a, um, I've got a 16 year old and an 18 year old. So, you know, I don't see them quite as much, but, um, but those are the two factors. So, you know, we can largely just look at those two issues and then say, okay, this child, we don't know, you know, if this child grows up, what issue they'll have. We don't know if it'll, if they'll have what they call internalizing issues, like mental health issues, like anxiety or depression, 
or if that will express itself as, you know, addiction issues or homelessness or so on. But what we know is that it will, it will almost always express itself in one of these, these ways that, that is not good for them, that they won't uh, enjoy. Does that make sense? It does. Now, I have a question. Have you done any research with this in relation to the love languages? So, for instance, my husband's love language is physical touch. Mm-hmm. Mine is acts of service. So I almost have to remind myself I need to give him a hug today. Now, like you said in the beginning when we were dating, that wasn't the case. But as we've been married 11 years, it's like, oh, yeah, I need to go give him a hug because he needs that. And not that I don't need that because I know there is a calmness that comes across me when we do hold hands or just hug for five seconds. You can almost like feel each other's energy, for lack of a better word. And it's a calming presence for me. So I was just curious if you have done any research related to the love languages with this. So, yeah. So the so love languages from a research perspective, I, I haven't run into... Uh, scientists that seem to think that holds up a lot in from a research perspective. When they've done a lot of research on it, my understanding is the, the vast majority of people in in this space, and it's not one I've ever done research on, okay. don't think that has that has held up a lot in terms of you know making a a, a significant difference when they sort of take te- you know one group of subjects and test them and you know against a placebo group and all that stuff. They just they can't see that 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 model. Uh, tends to work. There are some other models. Um, there's one called uh, emotionally focused therapy, which is um, that one has you know quite a bit of evidence to it. But I haven't, and and, and I might be wrong on that. There there may be uh, that isn't you know sort of uh, you know my area, but but that's that's my that's my general sense. But, but getting to this issue of some people don't like getting hugs, for example, right? And what what really is what we think is happening there when I talked about how oxytocin is the long-term um, uh, happiness chemical, if it's released in safe relationships, what we often find is that people do need it, but the problem is they had, they had oxytocin released in unsafe relationships. And so their, their brain sort of associates oxytocin with subconsciously with some sort of past pain, you know, a past romantic partner that, you know, in a romantic relationship, we have all sorts of oxytocin release. Well, if you've had, you know, experienced some, some bad breakups, you're, you can actually be conditioned to not to avoid it. And it it sort of would be like if somebody um, gave you, you know, fruits and vegetables and shocked you every time you ate fruits and vegetables, right. They caused you pain every time you did, you would shy away from fruits and vegetables. Now, it still would be, that's not, that wouldn't be good for you. That would, you know, actually be very bad for you because, you know, fruits and vegetables are, are good for us. Um, but that's, that's, you know, what can happen. And so if we, if we feel like, hey, this is a safe relationship, then we almost have to push ourselves a little bit more to say, you know, I need sort of my, my fruits and vegetables for, you know, for lack of a better example, I know that I need this for my long-term well-being. It's not comfortable for me right now, but I need to sort of push through that because it's, you know, it's it's the long-term ha- uh, happiness chemical. Right. And I've always 
thought about this. Um, I did a lot of research on the mind when I did the Change Your Stinking Thinking Challenge in the Nacho Kids Academy. And the mind amazes me. And see, your mind is what tells your body to release these chemicals. Mm-hmm. So our mind is not always our friend because it tries to protect us based off past experience. Like you said, with you know the example of the vegetables and stuff. When I see someone tell their little kid to go hug somebody, well, go give so-and-so a hug, go give so-and-so a hug. It makes me uncomfortable right? because what if they're making them give this person a hug, but that child doesn't feel safe doing it, but they're doing it because their parent told them to. I mean, that could cause long-term issues. I agree. And, and I, yeah, I want to be clear. I'm in no way saying that. Like, you know, again, I, I, there's all sorts of reasons not to, you know, do that. That sort of, uh, you know, gets into some, some topics of why you can kind of put your, your child more in danger of future child sexual abuse and issues like that. Not, not, you know, that's, that, that could be sort of the, the most extreme situation, but if you kind of say you need to express physical, uh, you know, affection with uh, people that you don't want to, it, it can really send the wrong signal. So I'm in no way saying that I, uh, I don't mean go out and have your kid, uh, you know, start hugging everybody. It, oh, no, I know that's not what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> but I think about that when I do see that happen, because I'm like, you can tell sometimes little Johnny's not comfortable hugging Aunt Lucy. Right. And it's like, well, don't make him do it. It's okay. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, you, we want to train our kids that they're the boss of, you know, they're the boss of their own body. They don't get to be the boss of much, but they do get to be the boss of, you know, of their own body. That's kind of an important, um, you know, lesson that, that kids need to learn that can help them when they get into, you know, more serious situations later in life. Exactly. So we have these two core issues, right? So that's, you know, and people can kind of sometimes get lost when we talk about the chemical stuff. So let's bring it up a level. Let's talk about the things that most impact those issues that are a little more concrete. And so one of them is this concept of deep bonds. So we, part of how we discovered uh, the, the, the importance of deep bonds and other scientists had discovered it long before in their own ways. But part of how we did in our research is we were doing a, 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 some research on couples and we were uh, studying couples who had been married. Uh, these were heterosexual couples who had been married 15 to 20 years. And as part of our questions, we would ask them, we would kind of start the question out by saying, you know how with your, you know, your, in this case, their spouse or their, your romantic partner, how you get, um, you sometimes you get in sort of an argument and you kind of don't, you kind of avoid each other for a couple of days. You kind of, one of you's ticked off at the other one and you don't kind of talk for a couple of days. And then we were asking some follow-up question, but some of these couples who were again, married 15 to 20 years looked really confused. They both look confused. They're looking at each other or they're asking any questions like, do you think we do that? No, I don't think we do. Do you think we do that? And me and my my co-founder were really confused because we you know we both think that we're in you know good relationships uh, and so on, but we're like, how is it possible that you don't have those? And so we thought maybe we were asking the question wrong. Well, it, it, it happened. It was rare, of course, but it would happen periodically in these relationships. And so what we eventually found out was that when you looked at uh, let's you know we'll start with the wife she had a deep bond with both her mom and with both her father. And uh, if you looked at 
the 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 husband in that relationship so did he now maybe they weren't by a lot you know maybe it was a stepfather or you know something like that but they would both have sort of these these two parental figures that they had a deep bond with and then you know you looked at at you know their relationship and it was this unbelievably calm mature loving relationship and so then that led us to sort of learning all about attachment and all of that kind of stuff and so one of the things that we figured out was that we as a society don't know how to build deep bonds. We, they're basically random. That's why you kind of go, you know, I'm really close friends with some people and other people we just didn't head it off and we're not close friends with them. So you have this sort of randomness. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that also happens with, uh, with our children. So if you, if you don't learn how to specifically build a deep bond with your child, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's your uh, statistically unlikely to have a deep bond with that child when they are an adult. Now, so in other words, it's less than 50% chance that you will, if you haven't learned these particular skills. Now, thankfully, they're pretty easy skills to learn and, and that type of thing. So one of the things is that it's important to have this concept that I want to have, I, I want to have a deep bond with this child, that that is a goal. Um, and again, it's, 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 it's pretty easy to, you know, to learn how to do that. It turns out that when we study parents and we, we, we determine what their primary goal is, the vast majority of parents, uh, their primary goal is not to have a deep bond with their child. Their primary goal is to influence their child. So they, they basically want their child to make the same decisions that they would make if they were in the child's shoes. And the child picks up on that, of course, right? They know that they're trying to be influenced, that that's their parent's primary motivation. And so they do the opposite. They often, they do the opposite. They go, I'm, I'm not, I don't want you influencing me all the time. I'm going to try to do the opposite. And they specifically don't want a deep bond with that parent, right? Like if you think about your own adult relationships, if you have somebody who's constantly trying to change you, you don't want to have a close relationship with them, right? You want somebody who just wants to be close with you and isn't trying to, you know, constantly change you. Mm -hmm. So that's what happens. So when you, when a parent's primary goal is to influence, they don't get the influence and they don't get the deep bond. That's essentially what happens with that path. However, if a parent's primary goal is to have a deep uh, relationship with that child, a lifelong deep bond with that child, what we find is that the child picks up on that. They know, hey, my parent's goal is to be close with me, and that's what we need as humans. And so ironically, they also ask them for advice, which really shocked me when I went through this change with my kids. You know, I was a typical parent like everybody else, giving all sorts of advice, trying to get them to make all the same decisions I would make. And of course, they would never ask me for advice. And then once, you know, we shifted to my goal should be to have a deep bond with them. It's really shocking when they would start coming to me for advice. But, you know, that's how this works. That's why when we get into a bad situation or a situation where we need advice, we're most likely to go get advice from our close friends. Even though they may not be the best to give advice, we'll go ask them anyways because we have that deep bond with them. And the people we will avoid are the people who are always trying to influence us. The last thing that we're going to do is go give them the satisfaction of asking for their advice again. And now, man, if I ask them for advice, they're going to flood me with advice for the next six months. So we avoid them. So 
Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Makes perfect sense. So we need this. We need that goal to have a deep bond and we need to learn how to do that. It's really important to learn how to have a deep. Another important thing is this, this messaging inside of your family that for every member in this household, you know, the, you know, we might have, you know, a, a stepfather and a, and a stepmother and, you know, let's say two kids from, you know, from two different biological families. Let's go, let's say that was six people, all those six people. If we have, uh, if each person has a deep bond with each other person in there, or even just with one other person in there, both of their long-term well-being goes up. Mm-hmm. If you if you decide okay with this other family member I'm not going to have any a good relationship with them you know I'm not going to have a deep bond with them both of their long term well being goes down so it's either you know each one of those pairs of people in that family if they have a close relationship they both go up if they don't they both go down so it what ends up happening is you have this thing where everyone realizes if I don't have a close relationship with the others, my long-term well-being goes down and everybody's got that mindset. And so what ends up happening is everyone's trying to uh, work on those relationships. And they do that because we're selfish human beings, right? We want to improve our own lives. So if we believe that, you know, believe that that's true, which it is, then, then we all want to do that. So you end up creating this home where everyone's now, some may make mistakes sometimes, right? They'll they'll still annoy their sibling from time to time. But in general, they know that the goal here is to build bonds because it will help me later on, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and it'll help them, but mostly I just care about me, right? Because humans are selfish. <laughs> so having this environment of talking about deep bonds, asking people, you know, a, a, about their deep bonds with other members of the family, um, if I see, you know, one of my kids teasing another, I might say something like, um, you know, is that building your bond or is that tearing it down? And, you know, they, you know, they, they understand that. Then they value that. They see how, you know, that we sort of made this transition as a family and we're closer now. And, and you know, nobody kind of wants to go back to before then because it's, it's just a, uh, you know, much calmer, um, you know, more enjoyable uh, situation. Mm-hmm. So this concept of deep bonds is is really critical. Really critical. Any questions on that before I go to the next one? No, I'm thinking with our whole Nacho Kids method and how it was created. When you create these bonds, it took me a while to create the bonds that I have with my stepkids because I haven't known them since the beginning of time, and they had to learn to trust me, and I didn't push my influence on them like you said. Yeah. Whereas parents do tend to do that. So when the kids ask me something instead of their dad, I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, look at there. They asked me and not you. (laughs) But it's also because they know that I won't judge them for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and so when we look at, so then, so if we know deep bonds are the, the biggest issue, how do we build them? Right. What's the number one way to build a deep bond? And it turns out that it's it's kind of unexpected, um, but it's essentially um, helping them process their hurtful experiences. And I'll kind of explain more about that. So that's the, f- the the number one way to build a deep bond with somebody. Put it another way, how you act when they're having a tough time. So one of the, the key factors that we look at is when somebody is upset about something, it could be pretty minor, right? They 
they got a, a bad grade at, at school or somebody didn't sit with them at lunch or something, or, or maybe, maybe it's even, you know, less than that. They just, you know, I don't know, they, they were just kind of grumpy today or something, but mm-hmm. for some reason they're in this emotional state where they had a slightly bad day, not a horrible day, just a, you know, kind of a bad day. Well, it turns out that the first predictor that we can kind of look at is do people in the family notice and care? And actually, this might help to sort of understand that sort of throughout, you know, virtually all of human history, we lived in tribes. We lived in tribes that were pretty, you know, dangerous in the sense that, you know, we didn't have houses and neighborhoods and all that stuff that can kind of protect us now. We could get attacked pretty quickly from a neighboring tribe or a wild animal could, you know, could attack us when we were 100 yards away from the village or, or, or that type of thing. So, when we're in danger, when our brains think we're in danger, one of the things that we most care about is, is somebody else noticing and caring that I'm in danger. Because back then, if you didn't notice that a, a, this wild animal was about to attack and kill me, then I would die, right? This was a life or death situation. Mm-hmm. And our brains are still largely organized that way, right? I mean, just because society rapidly changed, it doesn't mean our brains did. Our brains are really more designed for that. I mean, pretty much in in psychology, you can look at issue after issue and it makes perfect sense when you're talking about tribal situations and doesn't make any sense in, in modern society. Well, this is one of those. So even though your child comes home from school and you know they're not in any real danger, their brain says, I'm in danger. And they are watching you to see if you're gonna notice and care. And when you don't notice and care, the, this uh, this fight or flight portion of their brain, the amygdala, basically you can think of it as starting to light up, right? The primitive portions of their brain start to light up. And again, it doesn't seem to make much sense. Who cares if, you know, they don't just had a bad day. You don't, why, why should you care about that? But it turns out that alarms the same thing with our romantic partner. So if we're having a bad day and they blow it off, they don't notice, they don't care, our primitive portions of our brain start lighting up. So the first one is to notice and care. And we think that we do that. We think, oh, and of course we do. If they had a death in the family or something horrible happened, uh, we're pretty good at that. Something big. Yeah, at extreme situations. But we're terrible at the day-to-day experiences of something's, um, you know, some mild thing has gone wrong and we just don't care. And so that, just that alone of doing that makes a huge difference. So like in, you know, in my family, I'm really proud of, you know, this sort of habit that my kids have is my wife might, you know, have a, have a bad day for whatever reason. And they will sense that you can almost see their heads like, you know, snap towards her, almost like a lion looking at its prey kind of thing. That's the wrong analogy, but they notice right away and they will converge on her, right? Oh, mom, do you need a hug? And, you know, they'll come over and give her a hug and, you know, Oh, you want me to make you some tea, that type of thing. Well, that in her brain, right. In the human brain, that really calms that person down. It makes them feel safe. And that increases long-term well-being that that will increase her long-term happiness. Now it also is actually good for, for them in that situation, because it gives them this sense of purpose, right? And so that's something we should all have is that that's part of our purpose. Our purpose is to help our, our, our other people who live in our home when they're upset, right? If we do that, 
their long-term well-being goes up, our long-term well-being goes up. So that's the first thing is just that, notice and care. And it doesn't take very long, right, to, hey, what's going on? Sorry that, you know, you had a bad day. Sorry your friend, you know, said something on Facebook that, you know, uh, was against what you said or something like that. It doesn't take much, but strangely, that makes uh, a big difference. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, It does. Because you're noticing that they exist, number one, and you're noticing something's kind of off with them and you're offering to be there for them so they know they're not alone. That's right. And before I get to sort of the, the second step of that, that process, um, the, the noticing that you exist is, is another interesting one, which was surprising to us when we kind of came across this research. But there's a certain percentage of people that feel invisible. And it tends to be more female than male, but there certainly are, are you know, lots of uh, boys and men who, who feel invisible also. One thing you can do is if you have a close enough relationship is you can ask somebody, hey, do you ever just kind of feel invisible? And some people will look at you like you're crazy and say no. And other people, you know, it, they'll sort of stop short and, you know, they'll say, yeah, I, I do. Sometimes I, you know, I feel like nobody sees me kind of thing. Well, first of all, that's kind of important to know because some kids will and some kids won't and your partner may or may not. It's it's good to know that if they do, it's particularly important that you that you do this other thing, which is when you haven't seen them in a while, uh, you see them in the morning, you see them when they come home from school or work, that type of thing. You smile and you greet them and you say, hey, you know, so and so. And just that makes them feel seen and will start, you know, addressing that invisibility issue. It's shocking that that little that little thing that you can do is just you see them, you look at them, you smile them, you're, you know, happy to see them. That alone will make a big, you know, difference to invisibility. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I I think that's actually a, a more widespread issue than people realize. Especially with stepmoms. And when you said more women than men, I'm like, yeah, because I'm thinking about the stepmom groups. And a lot of times when the stepkids come for visitation, the stepmom's like, I- it's like I don't even exist. The bio parent spends all their time with their kid. If I say something, it's ignored. So they really do feel invisible. Yeah. And that does not make anybody feel good. Feeling invisible or feeling alone are two of the saddest things. It is. I agree. And it creates this cycle. There's probably more cycles than this, but one cycle is the sort of anxiety depression cycle, right? You kind of go into this, you know, sort of internalizing negative process. The other one is attacking. So what, what people who feel invisible can do to, to get attention is attack. And in the short term, it does, right? Attacking means, you know, know, verbally attacking, saying something critical, yelling, that kind of thing. And it does get some attention in the short term, but in the long term, people will try to ignore them even more, right? They'll just, everybody leaves the room, right? And it makes them feel even more invisible. So it's a sort of vicious cycle. and, And I, so I think, you know, if you can work to to make the home an emotional safe haven, which again, there's lots of things in, in our completely free app with no advertisements that sort of teach all that. Um, you get to, you can get to a, a place of trust where you can say that. You can say, uh, I feel invisible in these, you know, in these situations and people can help, uh, you know, kids will understand that and will, you know, they can start uh, responding to that. It, it really is this very sweet situation once you end up building this level of trust and you start addressing, you know, these core issues, uh, uh, you know, in the family. Right. 
And I know that we're mainly talking about kids here, but I see so many similarities with what the step parents feel in the blend. And it probably relates to their own childhood trauma. Yeah, I mean, so childhood trauma essentially raises that unha- that long-term unhappiness chemical. That raises uh, our sense of being on edge, of nervous that, hey, somebody treated me poorly in the past. So now I'm kind of nervous around anybody like that. So if it was a man uh, who treated me, you know, uh, badly when I was a when I was a child, I might be a little nervous around all men, or I might be a little nervous around men that have a certain hair color or or whatever. But my cortisol levels get get raised, and you know, in all of these situations. So yeah, those those really relate to that. And yes, even though we focus on kids, exactly the same principles apply to adults. There's no. I haven't seen any scientific uh, data that shows that it's any different. We just happen to have more of a focus on kids because if we can address it in our kids, it's easier to sort of address the issue sort of early on than than later. But it absolutely can, you know, be addressed later. It, but that's yeah, that's basically what's going on is we have these these issues that raise our cortisol. We probably you know may not have gotten enough oxytocin in safe relationships. We may have actually gotten oxytocin in unsafe relationships, which which hurts long-term well-being. So yeah, that can have a lot of those issues. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The other thing, you know, about uh, deep bonds. So we talked about, you know, this thing of, I sort of think of it as think about how often do you notice and care when somebody's upset? And how quickly do you? So does it take you 10 minutes or, you know, if you can, if you notice and care within a minute of somebody coming into the room, like to me, that's like Olympic level stuff. Like you should feel really good about that. Even if it takes you five or 10 minutes, that's still, you know, really good. But that, that concept of how often for each family member, do I notice and care just a little, I don't need to go talk for 10 minutes and go on and on. It might even embarrass them if I talk too much, but just showing that I know, I see you. I care that you're hurt, even if it's just to say, hey, I'm sorry you had a, a rough day and maybe give them a you know quick hug. Or what about just saying, I'm here if you need to talk? Absolutely. That that's another, you know, good one. I'm here if you need to talk. The next level down though, and this is we we teach on a lot of this in the app, is this uh, concept of helping them process their emotions. So it turns out when we think of our identity, of sort of like how do humans really think of themselves? Do we think of ourselves as our hair? You know, do we think of ourselves as our physical body? It turns out the human brain most identifies with our emotions. So if I'm having a certain set of emotions and you minimize those emotions, that to my brain is incredibly hurtful. We identify with the emotions that we feel. So if you minimize those, if you say that they're wrong, if you criticize those, my primitive portions of my brain are going to light up. And what I'm really going to feel is like you are rejecting me. When you reject my emotions, you reject me. Now, the flip side of that is if you validate my emotions and if you can name my emotions, then you really get me. You really, um, you're, you're validating this most insecure, deep down part of me that, you know, we all, you know, want to feel loved and feel good enough. You're validating that. So this uh, ability, the skill set to be able to, when somebody's upset, 
to be able to name the underlying emotions that they're having is the number one way to build deep bonds. So it's basically, let's say, you know, a child uh, ha has a toy that's broken. So we can, and they're, they're crying about that. So I'll first kind of give some examples of the way that you don't want to do it. So one way to do it would, you know, to not do it would be to say, you've got lots of toys. Well, you know, what do you, this, this is nothing to get upset about. You're overreacting to this situation. All of that might be correct, right? From a, you know, from just a, a literal situation that all might be accurate. But what you're basically doing is, is hurting the deep bond with that child. And you're saying your feelings aren't correct. And what the human brain takes out as saying is you're not correct. You are not a good enough human, which I know sounds silly, right? It does, seems like, well, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that. When I say they're overreacting, when I say that's not what I'm saying is that they're a flawed person, but that's what their brain hears is that they are a flawed person. Right. So what we want to do instead is name what they're feeling like. Oh, are you, uh, are you, you know, disappointed that now you don't get to play with the toy? Yes. Are you worried that you'll, you know, never get to play with a toy like that again? Yes. Were you concerned that I was going to get onto you? Yes. The more of these underlying emotions that you can name, the more strangely, what you're saying is you are good enough. And that is this core issue of, you know, of long-term well-being is, is this, we're constantly gauging, are we good enough in, in society? And so where you can get to is that the child will say, you get me. And it's, it, it was weird. The first time, you know, one of my kids said that it sort of shocked me because I kind of knew that was the ultimate goal and that if you do this enough, you can get to that level. But it was still shocking uh, when they would say, dad, you know, you're one of the only people who really gets me. But, but that's the goal. That's what we want. Because if we feel like somebody really gets us, that gives us just this huge boost in terms of our long-term well-being and, and so on. Right. And as you're talking about this, I remember a lady several, several years ago. I was in a relationship and this person could make me feel bad for the way I felt. So, for instance, if I was upset that they were out of town and didn't call, just for example, then when I did talk to them, they're like, oh, my gosh, you're being ridiculous. You're my first point of contact should anything happen to me. That's irrelevant. But honest to goodness, I would hang up the phone and be like, how did they do that? They made me feel bad for Karen. Yeah. So I was talking to this lady at work at the time, and she said, your emotions are yours, and they are real, and do not let anybody discount those. That's right. That's absolutely right. I mean, I think as a society, we need to realize that emotions are never wrong. Actions can be wrong, right? So a child could have, you know, all sorts of emotions, and all of them are, are, are correct. They're, they're just a fact that they had those emotions, right? And again, if we say that they're wrong, we're saying the child is fundamentally flawed. That's what the brain, you know, we know from brain scans that that's essentially how the brain takes that. But the action can be wrong. If the sibling then, you know, or if the, that child reaches out and then, you know, hits their sibling, that's wrong. So actions absolutely can be right or wrong, or what we say, right? If the if the child says something really hurtful to their sibling, that can be wrong. But feelings are not wrong, right? They're they're just feel they're just you know things that happen. We just have them. They're chemicals that get released in our body, and they might be jealousy, or they might be you know being worried, or they might be you know different forms of anger. 
uh, embarrassment and so on, those are not wrong. And when we say that they're wrong, we're damaging our relationships with that person and lowering their long uh, their long term well being. I like that you say that emotions are never wrong, but actions are. Because someone could say, "Oh well, they said my emotions are never wrong, and I'm mad, so I have a right to go throw these plates around the kitchen." No, that's not what we're saying. You have to recognize the emotion. It's real. It's there. You don't just dismiss it, but you put the proper emotional weight on it. If the dishes aren't done, you can be mad. Allow yourself time to be mad about it. Give yourself five minutes. And five minutes is a long time, especially when you're timing yourself of, oh, I will give myself five minutes to be mad. You'll quickly reduce that to 30 seconds. But yes, you can be mad, feel that emotion, claim it, name it, but you don't have to react off of it. That's right. And I, you know, I like how you talk about sort of the claim it, name it one, which um, I've sort of also heard somebody call it a name it to tame it. It was is sort of a similar phrase, but that's pretty well, uh, you know, proven where if you have an emotion, uh, so you have, we have different parts of our brain, right? We have, you can think of it sort of the thinking part of our brain is sort of what they call the prefrontal cortex is, is a big part of that. Um, and then you have these more primitive fight or flight portions of our brain. And whenever you try to name the emotions that you're feeling, because we're usually feeling three to five emotions at any one point in time. And if you can name those, what you're really doing is the, it's having the logical part of your brain. It calms down the more primitive parts of our, our brain, those fight or flight parts of our brain. So you're actually, by doing it, you're calming yourself down and, you know, you're able to then sort of act more rationally and, and you're not as upset. You'll literally, you can talk yourself out of being upset by just naming those emotions. When you do that for yourself, you not only calm yourself down and reduce your own happiness, but you start building up the skill set that allows you to do that with others, where you can start naming their emotions and building deep bonds with them. Right. I remember being a teenager and like being consumed with rage for whatever reason was going on. And if you would have told me this at that time, I'm like, no, I can't control that because you do, you get so wound up and your mind just keeps feeding it. And it's the fight or flight, like you said. And I think as a teenager, our reaction, and I may be wrong, is normally the fight, not the flight. I think the flight part of it comes with wisdom of, I'm just not going to entertain this. I'm just going to walk away from it instead of engaging in negative interaction. Yeah, I I agree. Between those two, flight probably is better. There's a third one, and you're probably aware of freeze, which turns out to be one of the more damaging ones uh, where you just freeze and don't do anything at all because it appears that you're sort of like keeping in, you know, all of this emotion. You're not able, and all of this energy that fighting or or fleeing a lot. You know, if you were physically running away, you sort of release all this, and they can, you know, they can see this in animals also. I, I agree. I do think some people, you know, it obviously depends on the person. So um, if you if somebody tried the the fight approach. And then they got even more hurt, right? Let's say, you know, a child tried the fight approach and the adult, you know, then really took it out on them, right? Then they might 
be afraid to ever do that. And, and, and so now they don't fight. They always, uh, you know, do the flight side or the freeze side. So, you know, you have different people kind of react in, in different ways, but, but something like rage or anger is a surface emotion. We don't even, we have these emotion lists that you'll, you can name emotions. And so mad, for example, is not on the list because it's, it's too, it's a surface emotion. Mad is not what's really going on. It's usually these three to five underlying emotions of I'm mad because I'm embarrassed that this, you know, because of this, and I'm nervous about this, and I'm worried about that. And you have all these underlying emotions. So you want to try to name those, right? When you're when you're angry to say, okay, what's really going on here? What are these underlying emotions? Because if I can figure those out, then I can not only diffuse the situation, this situation, but I can diffuse future situations and increase my well-being. Right. So your app, you've got me really interested in this. Your app walks people through how to learn these skills. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So I'm going to sign up for your app. I'm going to do it because I know that I could use improvement with being a parent. Since I have re-engaged with my stepkids, I know that there's things that I could also used to benefit my relationship with them. I do have to say one thing that I am proud of myself about and proud of my son. He's 15. He'll be 16 in a couple of months. Anytime he leaves the house, we hug each other. And I am so thankful for that because a lot of times when I talk to people, I'm like, I'm a crappy mom. I did this wrong. I did that wrong. Let me go back and see where all my cortisol moments were. But I'm so thankful that we have that relationship because it does mean a lot for me to be able to hug him before he leaves. I think that's so great. I mean, you know, one thing that moms will, you know, will often say to me is like, I knew it. I knew, you know, hugs were really important. And, you know, because I, I think, you know, prior to all this, it's sort of like, oh, you know, that I think a lot of people had this, oh, it's kind of a mom thing. They're always trying to hug everybody and that kind of thing. And, uh, but it, you know, it turns out it's one of the most important things. So I think, you know, the, the fact that you do that uh, and that, you know, he's willing to do that is great for both of you. Another um, sort of, you know, short, uh, sort of an easy tip that I think is, you know, what I, what I kind of do is the love you buy thing. So at the end of the conversation, instead of like, Hey, I love you. I love you too. Okay. Bye. Bye. That's a little more awkward, but just sort of like, as you're saying, bye, instead of just saying bye, just, all right, love you. Bye. And so you kind of throw that in, you know, just as just an, an extra couple words there, it's it's a little, it's not as good as the hug. The hug is way better, right? Uh, you know, daily hugs, but it's a, a little one of those just uh, extra couple words that, you know, gives, you know, gives that other person the oxytocin, this warm sort of a loved feeling. But I think that's, you know, fantastic. I think the, the, the more we, you know, we just, we just didn't know how important that was, how important hugs were, but they're so important. Uh, so I think that's, that's fantastic. You know, we were at Thanksgiving and we were talking about everything going on with COVID and all that. And I got kind of emotional about it. And I said, what bothers me the most is basically we're being told not to hug people. And I remember when my mom was sick in the hospital, I was kissing her on her forehead. And the nurse told me basically not to do that because she had the flu and pneumonia. When she told me that, there's a part of me that almost collapsed. Yeah you're telling me I can't hug my mom or kiss my mom. And I remember looking at her and I'm like, what? And she said, we don't want you to get sick. I'm like, lady, I will get sick. I will hug and kiss my mama. That is more important to me. And it's scary to think that with all this 
social distancing that we're not able to freely hug people like we were before. I agree. I think, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I don't understand that side as much. You can't talk to that. But COVID is going to have some really negative impacts because when you look at those two issues, cortisol and oxytocin and, and those specific situations, COVID is making both of them worse, right? We're getting, you know, we've been sort of crammed in, you know, in the house together more often. We're more agitated, right? So that it's going to make us be more nervous that, you know, that one of us is going to emotionally ambush the other. We're not getting, you know, as much face-to-face contact with with other people, which we even just sitting in the same room as somebody and looking them eye to eye releases, you know, oxy, you know, a lot of good oxytocin. Or seeing somebody smile. We can't even see people smile. That's right. That's right. So one, you know, one thing when we look at oxytocin, so if you text with somebody, you don't get any, right? So that's kind of the worst one to do. Mm-hmm. If you talk on the phone with them, you get a lot more. So that's actually a really good one. If you have a video call with them and you can see them eye to eye, you can see their smile, you get more oxytocin. And then if you're, you know, in their presence and able to, you know, talk to them face to face, that's even more. So you can kind of think about sort of the closer we are to them, the more that more that we get. So in some ways, there's going to be all these negative uh, issues. The, the positive side, though, if we try to look at it from a glass half full perspective, is that lots of parents are starting to focus on their kids' mental health. And because because of that, they're finding apps like ours and they're, they're solving issues that are not just COVID related, but they're basically learning these fundamentals that'll help their kids for the rest of their lives. So for parents who are, you know, who would have not thought at all about their, their children's mental health now are doing that. And those parents at least are actually, it'll, it'll, COVID will end up being a good thing for their families, ironically. So, you know, it's a little bit of both, but yeah, COVID is definitely exacerbating those, those two important chemicals. I'm all about finding the silver lining and I can see where with the COVID, it could create deeper bonds within your family unit. Sure. I mean, you get a lot of people who talk about, you know, kids who are, you know, young adults, right? 18 to say 26 or something that, you know, are are coming home, right? Or did come home, right? Maybe they're actually leaving now, but during COVID they came home and, you know, spent more time together as a family. So there definitely are pros and cons, um, you know, of of both. I, I agree with you. I think it's it's emotionally healthier too to look at the positive uh, side of things and to 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 find to try to find that silver lining. There's there's plenty of evidence that doing that also you know improves improves mental health. Well, it does, and it goes to the whole positive thinking. You've heard of Dr. Daniel Amen and his aunts. Uh, it sounds familiar, but it's not coming to mind. Automatic negative thinking: how our brain works to basically tell us negative things. Sure. I really love talking about the ants because. The amount of negative thoughts that we have per day is crazy. Like 70-something percent of your thoughts are negative. Sure. But you can change that. A lot of that is by keeping gratitude journals, by thinking and being more intentional with your thoughts and diligent in your thinking. So when I wake up in the morning, I can go, oh, my God, it's cold. I don't want to get out of the bed. Okay, two negative thoughts right off the bat. Instead, I could go, oh, I had a good night's sleep and I'm ready to get my day started. You may not really feel that way, but if you tell your mind that, you will start feeling better. It's like you can convince yourself you climbed Mount Everest. How crazy is that? That's right. I mean, so how brain pathways work is you can think of it as a series of roads. Mm -hmm. And if 
and, and that you're you can kind of make roads. Like imagine you're you know you control the roads in your city, and you can decide where new roads get made, and you know you can decide which roads don't get used anymore, and so on. Well the more negative thoughts that we have, we're literally building brain pathways. So we, we are, if you could look inside your brain, you're literally building these roads. And as you travel along that road, you have negative emotions. So the more negative thoughts that you have, the more you're building, let's call them negativity roads. And the more likely as life happens, your thoughts will sort of drive down the negativity road, which means you're essentially setting yourself up in the future for for bad emotions. Whenever you allow yourself to ruminate on, here's everything that's wrong with my life and so on, you're not just making today worse, right? You're not just feeling bad worse. You're laying roads that, you know, sort of the cars in your mind, to butcher this analogy, they're going to go down by default. So if you say, I'm going to purposefully go out to create positive roads so that in general, you know, when life happens, my thoughts will go down these positive roads, then they're going to trigger positive emotions and I'm going to generally be happier. But we don't tend to think about that. We, we like to, to ruminate and kind of think, oh boy, I would sure like to tell this person off. And if I could, I'd tell them this, 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 and this. And and, and it, it kind of feels good at the time, but the reality is it's setting up these, it's, it's, it's laying down roads that our brain is going to go down at some point. And that's, you know, going to cause these, these negative emotions. It'll also cause you to do things that you didn't want to do. Like sometimes we might think to ourselves, oh, I'd love to really tell them off, maybe even in a way that I know wouldn't be appropriate, but it's just in my head. So I may as well just let them have it in my head. Well, if you ever notice when you actually talk to that person, you'll actually sometimes you'll do what you mentally rehearsed and you go, oh my gosh, later you think, oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I was just thinking that in my head because I can get away with it in my head. But you got to be careful because if you mentally rehearse it, that's what your brain by default will want to do in that situation. So I try to, if I have, you know, some situation where I really don't like, you know, how something happened and I really want to tell that person off how I really feel. I'm pretty careful not to mentally rehearse it that way because then I can do it. Then I can, you know, find myself in that situation and I find my, you know, you know, saying things that I don't want to say. Exactly. And it's like you were talking about the primitive brain. That primitive brain is our basis. And so a lot of our negative thinking that we have is a bad habit that we have to break. But once you break that habit and you are more aware of your thoughts and you become more positive in your thinking, you'll notice how negative people are around you. Right. Yeah. And there's also some research, you know, because I think, yeah, what you don't want to say is, hey, you're having negative thoughts, just stop that, right? <laughs> like that right. doesn't work. If you tell the brain, just stop it, it, it just wants to do it even more. So you want to redirect it. And like you said, you can redirect it to positive thoughts, but oftentimes that can be hard. Like, okay, I'm going to not to say you shouldn't do it. You absolutely should try to do it. But sometimes it's like, oh, it's, it feels overwhelming to somebody. So another trick that you can do is find is just think about neutral thoughts. So say, okay, I'm going to purposely find some thoughts that are just very factual about the information, you know, about mm -hmm. the situation. I'm going to go home. The house is going to be a mess. I'm just going to think about 
this is going to be my plan. I'm going to come in, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this first and that next and so on and have, you know, what they call neutral thoughts. Right. That's, you know, another one of those tricks to sort of redirect your brain from negative. Another one is this idea of usually the, the moment that we're in is fine, right? Usually that if I just look at the second that I'm in right now, I'm fine. Now I can, in the, I can, if I think about the future, I can think of some bad situations that might come up. Or if I think about the past, I can think about some bad situations. But usually if I think about, I just say, how is it just right now? How is it for the next minute, for the next five minutes? Are things okay? They normally are okay. Mm-hmm. Normally they're perfectly fine. It's like, Hey, I'm not hungry right now. And I'm not in danger right now. And yeah, I'm normally, so that's the other, you know, I think that, you know, there's some science around that of just saying, just, just focus on the moment right now. How am I doing right now? Don't think they call that future tripping where you're, you're thinking too much about the future. uh, And that's, you know, really bringing down or the past. And that's really bringing down in the moment versus just, Hey, right now I'm, I'm actually okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to think about that. Think about that. I, you know, I, I have what I need right now. Right. I use my phone to play mindless games a lot of times just because I need a two-minute distraction to break my thought process. That's it. Yeah, I completely agree. That just whatever you can do to redirect it, that's that's a great way to do it. Well, yeah, you, like I said, you just don't want to just try to stop it, right? If I said, don't think about a pink elephant, whatever you do, don't think about a pink elephant, your brain's going to think about a pink elephant. Like that's, it, it's just going to go that way. But yeah, if you redirect it, and I, I think those are both great examples of, of, of how to do that, then you can, you know, get off that, that treadmill. There's this thing where if I ruminate about how I'm right and this other person's wrong, there's some weird feel good feeling of, I feel superior to them. Like I'm, I'm right. And they're completely wrong. Here's all the ways that they're wrong. But just sort of realizing that's laying that groundwork, laying those roads that's going to make my life less happy, right? It's not going to affect them. It's not laying roads in their brain. It's not making brain connections in their brain. It's doing it in mine. So yeah, it's much better for my health to redirect in one of those ways like you talked about. Yeah, because I'm sure through your studies, you've seen evidence about what stress can do. Stress can literally kill you. It really can. A- absolutely. I mean, essentially, the, the two issues that I talked about, um, hospitals are full primarily of people who had those two issues that they they had too much cortisol, you know, in where they were worried emotions were going to plummet and too little oxytocin. Like that really, I think, started taking off with a study called uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences or ACEs. Are, are, have you heard of that? No. So this was a, 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 by you know, now it's a very, very famous study that happened at Kaiser Permanente. And I think the Center for Disease Control was, was involved in this. Um, and it, it measured what we now know are, are, are probably the biggest things that affect oxytocin and cortisol. Um, but there are things like, so essentially how it would, wor- it would work is you get a score of between one to 10, everybody gets a score. And they basically ask about these highly traumatic things that happened to you. And for each thing that happened, you get a point. So if you had any physical abuse, you might get one point. It didn't matter if it happened once or a bunch of times or sexual abuse, you'd get a point. So you get a, you know, or a parent in prison. And there were all of these things that happened. And what they found was that just looking at 
that, right? These kind of really extreme situations and counting up how many different extreme things did you have? uh, They found that the hospitals were full of people with high ACEs. And so there's all this research on that. And so uh, absolutely shortens lifespan. If, if you have those two chemicals off, you can shorten lifespan by 20 years. Oh, wow. And you know, you get all the, the various, you know, variations of that where, but it's, it's not at all uncommon for the average person to have three to five years, you know, less because of, you know, some of these issues it's, and that, that's the scary side of it. I almost hate to bring that up uh, because it's scary, but it, um, you're, it absolutely is a massive physical health issue. Um, you're, you're, you're correct about that. Mm-hmm. Well, Matt, it has been great talking to you. And you're right. I could talk to you for seven more hours because I've got more questions and more questions. And, <laughs> but I am going to sign up for this app. And I looked at it just briefly. And one of the things that I noticed was you choose the age range that your kid is. And then you answer some questions. And you decide what you want to improve with your relationship regarding your child. And you have the option to share it with your partner. And then you pick a goal, whether it's casual, regular, serious, or tireless, you know, based five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, or 20 minutes a day. So anybody can do this. You've got five minutes a day to where you could take this app and apply the information that it teaches you. That's right. I mean, it, we, you know, we did all of that, the work of, you know, making the app uh, where it was really easy for people to use. So I don't know if I mentioned this, but we have probably 15,000 reviews and the, out of a five-star rating, the average review, our average is something like 4.94. So extremely, these are extremely highly rated apps. That's how they became the, the, top apps, uh, parenting apps in the world. Um, so yeah, these are, these are not diff- these are not difficult or boring or all that kind of stuff. They're, they're made to fit into very small, you know, five minutes a day kind of thing, or five minutes every other day, if that's what you can do just to fit into your schedule, uh, in these bite size, easy to implement pieces that will make a really significant difference for, for you and your family. Well, we forgot to tell the people what the name of the app is. Uh, the name of the app is The Happy Child. Um, and since it's, you know, the top parenting app in the world, you can just go in and search for parenting if you want in the Android Play Store, or the, you know, the Apple Store, uh, iOS Store. Um, so you'll see it on there. But that's what it's called, The, the Happy Child. Um, yeah, and that's it. That's awesome. I'm really going to do this. And then I'm going to give some feedback to our listeners. And I'm definitely going to share this out in my Facebook group as well for those that don't listen to the podcast, because even if they nacho their stepkid, they may have bio kids that they could utilize this with, or they could share it with the bio parent to help them learn to build deeper bonds. And also, even if the step parent nachos, once they start reengaging, it will give them the chance to realize how they can form these deeper bonds with the stepkids. Right. I agree. I think it's a great thing. Well, again, Matt, it has been great talking to you and thank you for being a guest. And I have a feeling that I'm going to want you back so we can talk about some more stuff. And who knows, maybe we can revamp the family court system. I would love to to be back and thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks again. And you have a great day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. I do find it ironic that I scheduled these month of men a couple months ago, right? Mm-hmm. Matt Larson talks about a lot of the same stuff that our guest next week talks about. Interesting. Maybe he's setting the stage. I don't know, but I just think it's ironic that 
Matt talks about hugs, and then our guest next week talks about hugs. Maybe they're trying to tell you something. That I need to hug you? Yeah. Oh, Lord. You know, them really close hugs. David. <laughs> See, the court is, y'all can tell when I say David. <laughs> That's what it is. That is a mark that my cortisol levels are extremely high. Hmm. Yep. Possibly. Yep. That's what it is. All right. Well, apparently whatever constitutes oxytocin for me constitutes cortisol for you. No. Because I enjoy pushing your buttons. It makes me happy. I'm calling Matt, <laughs> and I'm going to ask him about that because he said it's a win-win. It is. Okay. I got to talk to Matt. Yeah, because I'm helping you... I'm helping you desensitize and learn patience. No. <laughs> no. You're giving me gray hair and acne. Oh, come on. <laughs> You're stressing me out. You're stressing me out. With that being said, we're almost through with our month of men, David. So sad. One more week. Hmm. All right. I've enjoyed it, though. Yeah. I think listeners have, too. We got a lot of good feedback. Mm-hmm. And like I said, even though Matt is not a stepdad or in a blended family, he still offers a lot of great advice to help us in our blends, whether mm-hmm. it's our blend with our significant other. Even though Matt normally deals with children, it's still human interaction. And well, I mean, you know, the whole human improvement project, think about it. You know, blended families are, are made up of what? Humans. We think they're <laughs> made up of humans. We're not sure. <laughs> like, I don't know, like, if my dad is fully human. <laughs> no, your, your dad's a part alien, <laughs> think, and it makes him proud to think so. And, but yeah, I mean, it's, it goes back to the whole improving yourself will improve others. Yes. And I think we often come out with trying to improve other people and not ourselves, and it just doesn't really work that way. There you go. You just summed it all up. All right. We're good then. Somebody's going to go, what? <laughs> this is the shortest outro they've ever had in the history of the Nacho Kids podcast. Yep. Sometimes things can change. Just not for long. Yeah. So don't expect it next week. That's right. All right, y'all. Join us next week for another amazing Nacho Kids podcast. Peace out. Oh, wait a minute. I forgot to say, life is good. <laughs> when you nacho. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nacho Kids podcast. Find us online at nachokids.com. Until next time, remember, life is good when you nacho.